Hey everybody, welcome back to the How to Adventure podcast. This is your host, Ari in the Air. As I look back on my life, it seems that although I have not amassed much for monetary wealth, I have been exceedingly rich in having experience and gaining expertise. It is something that I am eternally grateful for, but the causes of which have gone, for the most part, misdiagnosed, if diagnosed at all. I formerly, I formerly attributed this so-called success to things like frugality, an upbringing in recreation, and an overall allergy to the status quo and boredom. And as much as these things have had concrete impact, no doubt, the older I get, the more I realize that the things I've done, the places I've been, and the skills that I've acquired have as much to do with the people and relationships that I've surrounded myself with as my own actions. And within that, I now find myself very interested in looking at the actions that I made that led me to having these fruitful relationships in the first place. After trying on various occasions with various people to explain how I learned my different sports, how I became a filmmaker, and how I turned it all into a semi-real gig, I heard myself repeating a similar thing where I traded enthusiasm for knowledge, excitement for favors, and exuberance for equipment. Now, as I see others transacting with similar resources, I'll bet mostly unspoken or unrealized, I have ascertained that what I'm talking about, one of the most important ways that I came to bring such amazing people and opportunities into my life can be referred to in a few simple words. Stoke as currency. comes to mind four relationships in which I have had the most fruitful Stoke transactions of my life, and they indefinitely changed my life. 
we'll go in chronological order for ease of use here. So I started skiing when I was eight years old. I am the middle of three boys, and so I grew up skiing with my two brothers. My mother had a job at Mount Bachelor, our local ski resort, and my stepfather as well. So on the weekends, we were not always by choice, but we were always at the mountain. My mom made donuts in the bakery, so she had to be there super early. So usually it meant me getting to the mountain at 6.30 a.m. when the lift didn't open until 8.30. So there was a lot of dinking around. By the time I was 12, I was doing backflips. We all loved to jump our skis, and skiing became my life. After high school, I started going to community college here in Bend, and I was doing my best to manage my class load so it didn't interfere with my skiing, and then what did interfere with my skiing, I would skip. In 2008, I met a person who our relationship would change my life in skiing. His name is Grant Myrtle. At the time, Grant was a photographer at Mount Bachelor. He was working for another guy who was running this booth inside the lodge. You know, like the tourists come skiing down the hill, they take pictures of them, and then they display the pictures on the TV inside the lodge, and the tourists in turn buy the photos. One day, Grant was under the chairlift next to the slopestyle arena, which was a series of really big jumps. And he was taking pictures there. So we were, I was actually working at the time. I was coaching the MBSEF freeride team. I was a ski coach. And so the kids and I, as we usually would, we would go down through the slopestyle and hit all the big jumps. So Grant started taking pictures of us. And as I remember, I was doing a carving left side underflip Japan grab. Basically a barrel roll 540 kind of thing. Land backwards, do a sweet grab. And then I was doing switch cork 720 blunt grab. So fun. Grant was taking pictures. Anyway, so I went into the lodge at the end of the day, and I wanted to meet this guy. Well, it turns out that Grant was, at the time, I would say a 41-year-old South African man who was, in 1988, the winner of the Billabong Pro at J at J-Bay, Jeffrey's Bay in Cape Town, South Africa. He was a professional surfer. After his career as a professional surfer, he became a professional surf photographer, was traveling around the world all year, taking pictures of big wave surfers and being in the water with them and swimming under big waves, being published in the world's biggest surf magazines. 
we hit it off immediately. He was... He was instantly making comparisons from my skiing to the surfing that he had seen in his previous life. And so I got his phone number and I started calling him because I wanted to shoot more pictures because the pictures that he took of me that day, although they were very basic, just me in my coaching branded coaching jacket, my uniform, and uh, from a very standard position with a long lens, I knew that he could use a camera because he was a professional and I wanted to create things with him. My motivation in that was that I knew that to be a professional athlete, content creation was how it was done. From his point of view, it was both that he wanted to build a portfolio of skiing snowboard ski and snowboard photos so that he could continue his career as a photographer but transition from the ocean and into the mountains at the time he was writing a swallowtail directional powder snowboard it was awesome it was as if he never wanted to leave the waves. He just wanted to transition into a different form of water recreation and ride the waves that snow provided. Soon, Grant and I were very close friends, and we were spending a lot of time at Mount Bachelor together shooting photos. And there was this one day that I can remember like it was yesterday, and there was probably a foot of fresh snow, and bluebird skies. Grant and I went off of the backside of Mount Bachelor, and which is the sunny side, and we started assessing the terrain for photos. My style in skiing at that time, and I still think to this day, is somewhat surfy. And I didn't think of it as that at the time, but big wind lips. I always wanted to take big turns and just slash the natural features that were in front of me. Grant noticed that immediately. And when we looked at a pitch to ski, we almost saw it exactly the same in that that big wind wave right there, I am going to slash it or I'm going to jump off of it. And so it seemed like we were very much on the same page. There was this one wind lip that I thought I could jump off of. And Grant wanted to shoot this fisheye shot of it. I did this backflip that must have been six inches from his head. And on the back of the camera, just moments later, I saw the first... I saw for the first time something that I had created with a photographer that was in my mind or in my initial impression, incredible. The composition was unbelievable. 
there was a white trail of powdery snow coming off of my skis. I was upside down. The camera was right in my face. The sun was coming right between my hand and the ski in a big light flare. It was beautiful. So I continued to put my stoke into this relationship with Grant. I continued to be the person that I was the caller. I was not that phone answerer. I was the caller. I made Grant's phone ring all the time. And I said, hey, Grant, let's go skiing. Hey, Grant, let's go shooting. Here's the conditions. I've looked at the, con- I've looked at the weather. This is what we can expect. Pick me up, Grant. Pick me up. Give me a ride. Come on. And it worked. It kept working. We kept getting amazing photos. And for a time there, we weren't sure what the... We weren't sure... Or I wasn't sure what the reward for Grant was, right? I, at the time, didn't have the... I didn't have the frameworks. I didn't have the the foundations or the um, infrastructure to make incredible photos into money or into gear directly at that time. I was still learning that side of things, but I knew I was building a portfolio and Grant was too. What we were going to use it for was still unknown at that time. But soon enough, Grant realized that the guy he was working for at Mount Bachelor taking photos was an asshole and that he could remake the similar business at a different resort. So the next closest resort to us is Mount Hood Meadows. And in a year, Grant pitched this idea to Mount Hood Meadows that he could be the photographer there on the resort and they could have a healthy business together. Well, when Grant pitched it, he pitched a portfolio of photos of me. He also pitched at the same time to Mount Hood Meadows's sponsor, which was Dick Hanna Subaru in Portland, that they sponsor him with some kind of vehicle. And within the first 12 months of Grant doing this business at Mount Hood Meadows, he had this Subaru Impreza fully wrapped with Dick Hanna logos, Mount Hood Meadow logos, and pictures of me. I realized that we weren't just using each other. He didn't just need portfolio pictures, and I didn't just need a ride to the mountain. We were making things, and it was... It was harmonious in the sense that we were both doing and getting what we needed. And it was a friendship, no doubt, but it was, it started and was fed for a long time, in my opinion, by my input and constant phone callery and my fire that I just wanted to go ski and I wanted to create things and I wanted to latch on to people who had that same mentality. That was in 2008. Grant is still a great friend of mine and 
he should be a guest on this podcast. I'll try to make that happen here shortly for you guys. The next relationship that changed my life was when in 2014, I decided with my friend Sam Balliot that I wanted to learn how to highline. And we went to the Smith Rock Highline Festival. I think I've explained this on the podcast in the past. And soon after, I went to the Highline Festival and knew for certain that I would or I wanted to be a Highliner, I ran into the problem of, okay, I want a Highline, but I don't have a Highline. I don't own the webbing. I don't own the web locks. I don't own the pulley system. I don't own the line grip. I don't own those steel connectors. I don't own this. Not only that, but even if I owned it, I don't know how to set this up. I don't know where to set this up. I mean, I kind of knew where. Big cliffs, but the specifics, it's very, it's not, you can't just put that thing up and know that it's totally sound without extensive rigging knowledge and principles and practice. I didn't have any of that. I didn't have any friends that had that. And so I started looking at the Central Oregon Slackline community and I found a person who was very experienced and had a lot of gear, but was not active in the community. His name is Eric Rasmussen. Eric, still to this day, is a great friend of mine who I love dearly. And our relationship went something like this. I found out that Eric had all this gear and had an extensive history in highlining. Eric is still to this day one of the... I think he's the longest practicing highliner that I know. He was in the game of highlining back when they were buying industrial rigging equipment and applying it to slack lines, applying it to high lines. He taught Jerry Macheski, who is a world record holder over and over, how to slack line. This is where a little irony comes in. Eric was a highliner for a long time, trick liner, slack liner, highliner. But he had gotten himself into free flight. Not paragliding, but hang gliding. He's from California, and he had learned how to hang glide. Hang gliding had totally taken over his life, and all he wanted to do was hang glide. And I can attest that when you get a new thing in your life that is so powerful as free flight, it tends to squeeze out some of the other activities and some of the other time that you can spend doing other things. So hang gliding for Eric had squeezed out the space in his life for highlining. Highlining takes a lot of time. It's heavy packs. It's long hikes to the top of cliffs. It is extensive rigging processes. And then a short amount of actual highlining. For a whole day's work, you're going to get an hour on the line. And that's a lot. And that kind of process can get tiring. And especially for a person like Eric, who is almost every time, you know, this is four years ago now, 
Highlighted has exploded since then, but back then, a person like Eric was like the guy. You kind of needed one of those people to to make highlining happen for anyone because they were the ones with the gear and the knowledge to set it up. And without a person like Eric, you'd have three amateurs or four amateurs all trying to work together to make it uh, seem right without a person with expert knowledge that could say yes or no, right or wrong, this way or that way, right? So I latched on to Eric immediately. And I started telling Eric that I was really interested in going and rigging high lines and learning how to rig and learning how to walk. And we, the, the thing was, Eric was from California. He'd only lived in Bend for, a, for, you know, eight months or something when I met him. And I am fourth generation Central Oregonian. I've been all over this place and I've lived my whole life here. And so I intrinsically, once I learned how to highline even a little bit, I knew where the cliffs were. I knew where the waterfalls were. I had been to all these places and I could imagine where and how we could highline. But I didn't have the gear and I didn't have the knowledge. And so I got Eric stoked. And the first project that I got him really stoked for was a project over Benham Falls. Benham Falls is a famous waterfall here in Bend, Oregon. It is actually a class five rapid series of rapids but it's considered a fall and there's this big rock pillar on one side of it. And I figured we could go from the rock pillar across the river over the rapids to trees on the other side. Well, I called my friend Scott Baker, who is a world-class level kayaker. I called Eric. I got all the Highliners stoked. I said, let's go out here and do this. We can use your gear. You're going to love it. It's going to be easy, Eric. It's going to be easy. We get out to Benham Falls. Nothing about it was easy. To get across the river, you've got to use a kayak. To kayak across the river, you have to go between a class 5 and a class 3 plus rapid. Scotty, the kayaker, brought two kayaks, but only one skirt, which means that if you tip the kayak over even just a little bit, it'll fill up with water, and you're going to flip and have to swim out of it, and you're going to have to then get yourself out of the river in a part of the river that is very unfriendly to people. It has a lot of wood in the river. So Eric is the one who nominates himself to go over to the other side of the river with Scotty to find a suitable anchor for this high line. And he kayaks across and... <laughs> oh, yeah, what a day that was. He kayaks across and I throw him the tagline. We get the line across. He finds this tree that he thinks is big enough, but then he doesn't like it, so he wants to wrap this rock and so he ends up doing this really elaborate rock wrap that, in hindsight, I wouldn't have done. But he, he wraps this big boulder. And then we get the line kind of tagged across. We get the webbing tagged across. He hooks up the webbing. Then he's got to come back because he's the one that knows how to tension it. And you got to tension it from this side. So, essentially, I had convinced Eric 
that it was going to be easy, it was going to be sweet. It turned out to be really hard, and he had to do all the work. That wasn't the last time that I convinced him that something would be sweet and easy and he wouldn't have to do all the work when he really did. And not all the work, you know, I'm, I'm doing as much work as I can, but with limited knowledge, it's like he's got to be the boss and he's got to kind of run the show. And through various adventures, just like this one, I convinced Eric that there was a sweet new place to put a Highline, that it would be awesome, that he would love it, and little by little, I gained the knowledge from him by osmosis, by observation, by asking questions that allowed me to take work off of him. And so the more and more high lines we went out and rigged, I tried to let him relax and oversee what I was doing so that I could have supervision while I tested the knowledge that I had gained by watching him. And little by little, it started to work. And I gained the rigging knowledge. And little by little, he started to trust me to rig the lines that he would walk. And little by little, he started to trust me borrowing his gear. And little by little, his gear started to spend a large swath of time in my possession. He was always welcome to come walk on the lines that I rigged with his stuff and come check out and judge my rigging effort. And this thing, I, I have to say, I, I did get a moment or I did get a... Um, I had a conversation with Eric, or maybe not a conversation. He was talking about this in front of a group of our friends, and he recounted the time in his life that he was over-highlining, as he said. He was totally over it. He just wanted to fly. He was addicted to hang gliding. And he said that my incessant pestering got him stoked on highlining again. I'm very proud of that. Eric is an amazing person. Um, he's taught me so much, and I owe him a great deal. In late 2014, my best friend Wes Coughlin and I as you know, we were doing the bivy at the time, which was the world's most awesomest action sports dirtbag comedy show in the world. Is that redundant? And in late 2014, we were going to make a short film, filming a stunt with our friend Matthias Giroux, professional base jumper. It was called the Paraglide Rope Swing Base Jump. And... The idea was that Matthias would be in a tandem hang or a tandem paraglider. Another solo paraglider would let down a long rope with a handle on it. They would fly together, get a hold of the rope. Matthias would jump out of the tandem paraglider, swing on the rope connected to the normal paraglider, and then let go into free fall and then pull his parachute and land safely on the ground. So 
We went up to Cliffside, this flying site in Washington, just on the gorge on the Columbia River. And that morning where we had a team meeting talking about the stunt, I met a paraglide pilot named Daniel Randall. Daniel was young and clean cut, or he looked young. He's much older than me, but he looked young and he was clean cut and he was kind of quiet and introverted, but very, he has a very warm energy. He has a very, very warm energy. Daniel's role was going to be that of the solo pilot that Matthias would swing off of his glider. Well, Daniel wasn't too into that, so he kind of got someone else to take on the responsibility, and he agreed that he would be the tandem pilot that would fly me so that I could film the stunt. Well, that day at Cliffside, Daniel took me on my first tandem flight, and It seems kind of crazy looking back on it, but I swear, within 60 seconds of launching this glider, the first 60 seconds of flight, Daniel says, okay, you want to fly it? Take these, take the brakes. Pull left to go left, turn, pull right to go right. I was like, uh, okay, um, all right. Uh, and I was like kind of nervous, and it was like we were kind of going down, and the highway's right there, the big semi-trucks are going up and down. It's really scary, and like I think I flew for like maybe a minute before I was like, man, I think you, I think you should fly this thing. I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing this. <laughs> well, the stunt went off perfectly. It was awesome. The film is incredible. If you just Google paraglide rope swing, you'll find the Bivy episode on YouTube. Uh, super proud of it. Wes did an incredible job of editing. Uh, it's a video I'm very proud of. Um, but Daniel said, hey, you guys are awesome. I want to hang out with you. If, if you want um, me to teach you to paraglide, like check out my website. You know, you could get... You could get lessons from me, right? Go on the website. Lessons are like 1500 bucks. Super expensive. The gear is really expensive. Um, I'm thinking, huh, yeah, that's not really possible. Just not possible for me. Anyway, that was October 2014. In 2015, in February... We were having this, like, we had two winters in a row that were really warm. I wouldn't say that they were dry because it rained a lot. Our snowpack was really low because the rain took away our snow, and it was really warm, and uh, we had a lot of high pressure. So in February, I went out to the Oregon coast, and I met up with Daniel for, you know, to do an intro lesson. He said, yeah, like, just come out, and you can kind of test it out to see if you want to like spend the money on on the paragliding lessons, right? Well, I got out there and Daniel with his incredibly warm energy gave me a big hug and he had like three students on the dune that day, right? Three paying students. Cape Kiwanda, Pacific City, Oregon. One of the best places to fly in the whole world now. Now, 3 years later that I know that. And 
Daniel knew that I was excited. We had shared many of our past experiences in skiing and highlining. Daniel came from a background of BMX and was a professional BMX rider and traveled around the world with Matt Hoffman hitting mega ramps and going to skate parks and doing demos. And and it was Matt Hoffman that had got him into paragliding. And Daniel, when one of the pain students got tired, took the glider and said, okay, come here, like, here, get into this glider. I'll show you how to buckle up the harness and I'll tell you what lines are which and yada, yada, yada. And Daniel ran around that dune with me that day for a couple hours and showed me how to kite. And I got my first flight and I just couldn't believe how amazing it was. I just like, my mind was blown. It was broken. It broke my brain instantly. And from that day on, I started paying Daniel for lessons with Stoke. I called Daniel incessantly and I wanted to talk to him about the things that I had learned on the internet. I started reading. I started watching videos. I started um, downloading PDF books of the weather and the paragliding Bible and all this different stuff. And I started just consuming as much as I could. And I wanted to call Daniel damn near every day and talk to him about what I learned and talk to him about where we could fly. And maybe we can fly here and maybe we can fly here. And what do you know about this? And what do you know about that? And have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever seen this video? And Daniel loved it. Daniel loved it. He ate it up and he, I think that, I think that the same thing happened with Daniel that happened with Eric, that he had been paragliding for so long that the newness had wore off, the, the sheen had worn off. And when I came in, I showed him my sheen and the sport that he loved for so long started looking shinier. He remembered the the beginnings of the sport for him where he had had these childlike, amazing, wondrous experiences that were almost uncomprehendable, uncomprehensible, that we that we were flying under this like bedsheet with strings. And we had so much control and it was so fun. I spent 15 days at the dune that spring. It's four and a half hours from my house, so it's quite a jaunt. And I was going there all the time. I started to help compensate Daniel. I started helping his students because I picked it up fast. I'm sure there's people who have learned faster than me, but I wanted it. And so I started putting in the time right off the bat. And so I was learning really quick. So in the first summer, you know, I started learning in February. By that first summer, I was helping Daniel teach students on the dune, teaching them how to kite, teaching them how to strap in and teaching them about the glider and yada, yada, yada. And man, that was a great summer. That was a great summer. It ended up that Daniel, not only did he teach me for free, 
Daniel was so incredibly generous. Daniel has a ton of flaws. And his flaws drive me insane. But the things that are good about Daniel are so good. They are this, like I said, this energy that is so warm and so kind. And this just incredible generosity. Just incredible generosity. Daniel took one of these gliders that he had and he took this old shitty harness that he had and he said, here, Ari, take this harness, take this glider. Here's this tiny little 20 square meter reserve. You clip this onto this, you clip this onto this and you can fly it like that. Like here, take this and fly it and be careful. He fucking gave me a glider. I then took the glider home. I started going to Pine Mountain without a license, without being a member of the local club, which made waves. People started noticing right off the bat that I was flying at their local flying site without any local instruction, any of that, blah, blah, blah. But I was flying pretty well, um, not crashing too often. And, you know, I kind of told Daniel, I was like, man, like this harness, like, I don't know, I hit my butt on the ground, there's no padding in it. And Daniel just instantly gave me his personal gear. He gave me his acro harness with his $1,500 Regalo Reserve and his, his personal freestyle two paraglider, his most beloved possessions, just handed over to me. Because I was so eager to learn. Or, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm making an assumption here on Daniel's behalf that I, I'm giving causality to my enthusiasm for his generosity. And I'm not... I, like, that's just a perspective that I have. Okay? Don't, don't, like... Don't think that I know exactly why Daniel did that. But this is... Stoke is currency. I'm making a point you get that. I was so eager to learn every flight I had there at Pine Mountain under Daniel's gear. I called him after and I told him about it and we talked about what's happening here and this and that and that and I just continued to read and read and read and read and read. The next season I had my own glider and I was helping Daniel do lessons on the coast and getting more involved with his business and paragliding and yada, yada, yada. And I just think back on that and think that that was probably the most excited time of my life. I don't think I've ever been so fired up to learn something and to participate into something. And I don't think that I've ever had a relationship in which someone was so generous to me. I owe Daniel a lot for that. No doubt. The fourth relationship that I want to talk about is the opposite. It is where I took Stoke as payment. And it's with one of my best friends, Matt Brewer, 
who I met on the dune that first summer. Matt had started to learn with Daniel. He was a paying student and had started to learn how to kite the summer before with his girlfriend, and they had taken a year hiatus while I was full-fledged on fire paragliding. By the time they came back and were doing kiting lessons, I was flying and getting better as we all were, but I was, you know, a year ahead of him. And so one of Daniel's shortcomings is verbalization of techniques and explaining um, the nuances of a technique. That's something I excel at. And so I started helping Daniel's students and Matt and his girlfriend, Sarah, quickly became my friends. They actually, I found out later, that they lived only two blocks from me, which definitely plays into this story. And as Matt graduated from the dune and started flying at our local site here in Bend, Pine Mountain, I continued giving him tips and he continued to ask me questions and I have always known that for me at least teaching solidifies my knowledge. It solidifies my knowledge because for one, it makes me think about what I'm doing. Two, it makes me verbalize my technique in the sense that how am I actually doing something? I have to think about it uh, step by step and put it into words, not just like, this is what you think about, this is how it feels. And also, it allows you to take that verbalized technique and vet it through your experience and others' experience. So if you say, yeah, do this, and he tries it, and it's like, that didn't work at all, you're like, okay, well, obviously you're verbalization is wrong. Your, your technique is wrong. So s teaching has always helped me solidify my knowledge. It happened in skiing and then it happened in highlining and now it was happening in paragliding. And I was very clear with Matt. He knew exactly how I had learned to paraglide and how long I was paragliding. And so we were very transparent with where I was and where he was. And I started I want to say teaching. And I think Matt would agree that I taught Matt how to paraglide. Matt had so much stoke. Matt had so much stoke that he began to manipulate his job so that he could spend every afternoon paragliding. He would every day at noon send me a screenshot of the weather forecast and which is something that I was always looking at anyways but he wanted he was he was doing it um you know like <laughs> I know I've said it a lot incessantly every day without without fail and preemptively as well so 
he started picking me up and driving me to Pine Mountain every day and asking me questions all the way there and all the way back. And we talked about flying before we flew and we talked about flying after we flew. And our relationship became quickly paraglide-based, but we also got along really well. And Matt is still to this day one of my best friends, and I owe him a lot because as he put Stoke into our relationship, I was able to solidify my knowledge, and I excelled so much further in paragliding because he put so much effort and Stoke into it. I owe Matt a lot for that. This has been just a joy for me to think about and be grateful for these four incredible relationships. All of those relationships are very deep and meaningful to me, and I owe those people a lot, and I think that they have propelled me upwards onto a path that I could have never imagined on my own. That's a wonderful thing. Skiing, highlining, paragliding, these are all amazing things, but I have to say, when I think about it like this, the relationships I have with these people trump any sporting experience I could ever have. And I will continue to believe that and curate friends and mentors and students alike for the same reason. So, in conclusion, I would say that if you want to learn something, sometimes it's as easy as finding the person that has the knowledge and the experience and the equipment that you need, but is lacking the stoke. Maybe they're not lacking the stoke, but they'll just appreciate that you have the stoke and they will take it as payment. Most of those people aren't looking for payment in the first place. If you have an opportunity to teach someone and you can take stoke as payment, know that you're doing God's work here. Know that you're doing God's work. You might never know where that person goes with the things that you teach them, with the things that you show them, with the equipment that you lend them. Thinking about this has made me think that I need to be that much more generous with my knowledge, with my equipment, and with my time. So, if you got a question, feel free to email me, arianthair@gmail.com. I'll give you some of my time, some of my knowledge. But you got to be stoked. That's the deal, right? Thanks for listening. I hope this helps you. It helped me. So I appreciate you listening. Look forward to some new interviews that are coming out, hopefully this week. Sage Catabriga Alosa. Oh my God. The Yoga Slackers. Jason and Chelsea Magnus. Oh my God. 
I'm a lucky person, blessed beyond imagine. And I appreciate the role you have in that. So until next time, my friends, stay stoked and look for people that you can take stoke as payment from. Love you. Peace.